This is the Unraveled Podcast with hosts Caleb Aring and Nicole Richards. Join us as we unravel a new case every season. You are listening to Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. I'm Caleb Aring. I'm Nicole Richards. And you're listening to Unraveled. We wanted to take a moment at the beginning of this episode and acknowledge that there was no episode last week that was, in fact, on purpose, and that we had taken a break for the week in order to be with friends and family around um, the election results here in the United States. So we are back this week and feeling that now is a more important time than ever to be sure that you get involved in your community, get involved in your state, uh, be sure to help support organizations in the U.S. that are doing work to address mass incarceration and the criminal justice system, and get out there, get involved. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Nicole, and, and thanks for just you know letting our listeners know what was going on and where we were. And I'm sorry to those of you who were on the edge of your seat waiting for this episode. I know that we really left people with a cliffhanger in our last episode. And in our most recent episode, we were talking about the preliminary hearing where the judge would decide whether it seemed likely that Tommy and Carl had, in fact, committed the crimes that they were accused of committed, and we gave a brief discussion on our last episode about what that meant uh, in a preliminary hearing, and if we were talking on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, determining someone's guilt in an actual hearing where you need to find it beyond a reasonable doubt, you would probably be looking at a 9, but for a preliminary hearing, the judge is probably looking for maybe around a 3 or a 4 to determine whether or not they could go forward. And when we ended our last episode, they were about to go to a break in the hearing, but Tommy stood up and said that he had something to say, His attorney advised against him saying anything, and we talked last week about a number of reasons that an attorney would advise their client against that. Uh, Tommy, however, decided he still wanted to say something, and Nicole, why don't you tell us what did Tommy get up and say? Well, he got up and he was read his rights again, and he went into this new story. And they turned a tape recorder on, so we're able to know exactly what he had said. And he went in and he said that his mind had actually been clouded about the night of the disappearance, but that now it was clearing. And he does remember what happened that night. He said he had actually gone into McAnally's that night, but he wasn't with Carl Fontenot. He said he had gone in with another fellow, and this man's name was Marty Ashley. Now, we have not heard Marty Ashley's name at all. So at this confession that's being given by Tommy in the courtroom, this is the first we've heard of Marty. He says that um, Marty actually knew Denise Haraway, and so he began talking with her. And he said that Marty had told Denise, quote, if you were my wife, you wouldn't have to work at all, and that then... Marty kissed Denise Haraway on the cheek. He said that 
He asked, Marty was asking Denise to run away with him. Marty returned to his pickup. Denise then went out to the truck with this Marty character, and they drove off. Like, he basically says that he they dropped him off downtown and that they were planning to drive to Tulsa and stay with some friends of Marty's and that he never saw them again. That's where his story ends. That's where Tommy's story ends. So now we have a few different stories from Tommy. We have the one that he's told his attorney and his family, which is that he wasn't there. He has no idea what happened. He had a dream about it. And he told that dream to the police, and that's what's in the confession, which leads me to the second story that's out there, which is the story that is in the confession that is based on this dream that he says that he had, but has a lot more details in it, a lot of details that, surprisingly, Carl Fontenot also matches in some areas. But now we have this brand new story where he's saying it wasn't a dream, he was, in fact, there but that he didn't have anything to do with what happened. Do we have any idea why he's telling this new story? Is this what happened? Was there some motivation to make up a new story? Like, what is going on here? Well, and it's worth... I mean, it's it just blows everything out of the water, right? He gets up in a courtroom during a preliminary hearing, and he says not only... I mean, it, it, I really can't stress enough what a sort of out of right feel this is because he basically is like yeah I was there I was with somebody else but this whole other thing and they ran off together I mean he just has this whole elaborate story and of course the courtroom is shocked he you know nobody knows what to do with this bombshell the hearing ends Tommy goes back to the jail he cannot believe that he had done this. He is shaking and he's upset and he can't believe he did this. And of course it comes out very quickly, very, very quickly, kind of where this was coming from and what was behind this. And so, I mean, was the story true? Do we think it was true? Not at all. It wasn't true at all. And Tommy admitted that it wasn't true. He admitted it was, wasn't true immediately. He said that he had been given this, this kind of nudge on what to do by this individual who was in custody with him in jail. And this man was named was Jim Allen. And his name isn't that important in the, in the grand scheme of the case. He was just somebody who had basically, you know, talked to Tommy while Tommy was in jail. Tommy is young. He's there. He's freaked out. And, you know, folks talk in jail. So this guy is just another inmate in jail. Absolutely. And, What Jim had told him was that, you know, in order for him not to get the death penalty is that he had to give them a story that says you have to make it believe that make them believe that you were there, but that you left before the crime happened so that you were kind of an accomplice in it and that he had given him the number, you know, you'll get seven to 15 years. You will then be able to get out on parole before that. You won't spend a lot of time. But you have to go in and you have to make up, you know, you have to give them a story saying, hey, I was there, but, you know, I got out of there before these crimes happened. And really with the hope that this was going to get the death penalty off the table for him. And wow, that's just like, I mean, I guess I can understand, like, Tommy doesn't have a lot of education. I can kind of see 
where maybe this would make sense, but just, like, doing this without talking to his attorney when his attorney is advising against it. I mean, maybe also in Tommy's head, by throwing another name out there, he thought that he would be clearing Carl Fontenot, and maybe he was feeling some guilt about Carl being wrapped up in the proceedings, too. Maybe, but he was given the name Marty Ashley by this this individual in jail. I mean, he he didn't even know who Marty was. He just used this name because this was the man in jail had given him this name because he had said, oh, I know this guy who looks like those composite drawings that were made up, right? So it was like this little plan that got concocted in the jail. It was like, hey, I know a guy who looks like the drawings. Throw his name in there. Of course, you know, Dennis Smith went to go see Marty Ashley. He denied being involved. The police established quickly that this story was not true. And we now have a an attorney, Don Wyatt, who's representing Tommy, who is beyond frustrated at this point because he has this client who's getting up in the courtroom and making up these stories like almost like a teenager would and like as if it's a television program or as if it's so easy to just get out of this. I think it really speaks to the fact that um, Tommy cannot grasp what exactly is happening. He can't grasp the weight of what is happening or there is just this belief and I think we saw it a lot when we talked about confessions and false confessions there is just this belief that if I give them this information they'll get off my back if I keep throwing them you know keep throwing the bone somewhere else they're going to go for it and eventually I'm going to be let off the hook and again and again and again we keep coming to that's just not what's going to happen that's just not what's happening absolutely and I think um Shortly after this happened, this was at the end of court on Friday, uh, Tommy ended up in the hospital because he was feeling so sick from all of the nerves of, of, I guess, making up this story and, like, telling this false story that ended up really just causing problems for him, right? And now it makes him unreliable that even... If Don Wyatt even wanted to put Tommy on the stand, which most attorneys don't do for a number of reasons, but if Don Wyatt had had any thought that he might be able to put Tommy on the stand, it's like this has dashed that because any district attorney is going to bring up this story that Tommy told and say, were you lying then or are you lying now? Like, what are we supposed to believe? Yeah, it doesn't look good for him. It It does not help his case at all. The amount of stories he has told up to this point, um, you know, is not serving him. Uh, he does not understand, again, the the impact that these stories are having on him, how it looks for the judge, the DA's having a field day with it, and he is frustrating his own attorney to his wit's end, right? You have an attorney who's trying to, rep- as an attorney, I'm sure you know, that having somebody that you're trying to defend and... They just can't give it to you straight, you know, tell you exactly what's happened. And I think that's kind of where Don Wyatt at this point is kind of pushed to. Yeah. Well, and not just that, not just having a client who's saying different things at different times, but having a client who's getting up on the stand, on the record, with a recording going, no less, saying these things Mm -hmm. to the judge. I mean, it's just like, I mean, as an attorney, I don't even... I don't know how Don Wyatt just kept going with this case because that is so, so difficult. So that's how we end Friday.
And Monday morning, we're back in the courtroom. And we're still continuing with this preliminary hearing. And on Monday, there's a ton of people in court because they believe that this is the day that the uh, recorded confessions are going to play. So there's tons of people there thinking that they're going to see that. And uh, right off the bat, the uh, you know the prosecution doesn't skip a beat with this story from Tommy. Like Nicole said, they kind of just debunked it right away and just kept moving. So then right off the bat, the prosecution calls their next witness, and their next witness is a criminal analyst uh, named Lydia Kimball, and her name isn't really that relevant. Um, she's very, very basic witness, and her main purpose is to say that they've run a bunch of checks, and no one anywhere in the United States has tried to get any sort of identification or credit cards or bank accounts or anything under the name of, you know, Donna Denise Haraway or Donna Denise Lyons. And given this information, it is almost certain that she's not alive out there somewhere, that she must be dead. Yeah, because I think what we want to keep in mind in case this is... Uh, we've we've brought this up in prior episodes, but just to remember that what they are trying to do is they are trying to, without a body, prove that she's dead, and that so that they can get these tapes played. These these tapes are a huge thing that you know one side wants to play and the other side doesn't, and they have to be able to prove that there is enough evidence that proves that Denise is no longer you know, living so that they can get these tapes played. And that's totally what this analyst point is, is to go up and just kind of reiterate what you had already said. Absolutely. And then a couple more things is that the analyst also notes that no one has been arrested or hospitalized um, under either her current legal name or her maiden name, uh, and that they haven't found any unidentified bodies that they believe would be her body. Mm -hmm. So... They haven't found her anywhere, so they're saying it's a safe assumption that she's that she's not anywhere to be found alive, at least. Um, and then the police call their next witness after that, which is Mike Baskin, Detective Mike Baskin, and he testified about uh, what the police did in the case from the time that he arrived at McAnally's on the night of the disappearance. Uh, leading up to the arrest of Tommy and of Carl. And then after Mike Baskin finishes his testimony comes the moment that everyone's been waiting for. The prosecution wants to play the tapes, these confession tapes. And right away, uh, the attorneys for Carl and Tommy object. They don't want these tapes played. They say that there isn't enough... uh, evidence that Denise is actually dead, that a crime at all has actually even been committed to allow for these tapes to be played. And the district attorney's office, you know, we we commented in an earlier episode, I think it was actually our last episode, that you don't have to have a body 
to prove that a murder has been committed. Uh, But there were only a couple of cases where there wasn't a body, and in those cases there was still some sort of evidence. In one case, they had a crime scene where there was blood that was identified as being the blood of the victims. In another instance, they had bones that had been identified as being the bones of the victims. So even though they didn't have bodies in these other cases, they had some form of proof that these people were no longer living. And yet in in this instance, the district attorney is trying to go forward saying, you know, we have enough evidence based on the, you know, the people who have testified based on this woman who testified that, you know, no one's uh, applied for a driver's license, no one's been in the hospital, nothing like that. We have enough evidence. And so the attorneys go back and forth with this a little bit. A little bit. The, the Actually, this wrangling went on for hours. So a lot. For a lot, yeah. <laughs> they they went at it for hours, and they're citing this, these cases, and they're using that defense that there were these other cases, and it went on and on and on. Um, but eventually, after hours of this going on, the judge, Judge Miller, who was overseeing this preliminary um, case, actually ruled that the tapes could, in fact, be admitted into evidence. And, which is a blow, right? It's a blow to the to the to this case and it's a blow to Tommy and to Carl for sure. And um they take a recess and they set up the the monitor in the courtroom and the spectators are there and it's a packed house and folks have come to see this tape and that's finally what they're going to be able to do. And so they start playing the tapes and even from the very beginning right when they start playing the tapes uh, Tommy's attorney is on top of it again and objects right away, saying that there's no evidence on the tape that Tommy has been read his rights, uh, and the objection is overruled, and the tape plays, and the entire uh, confession tape plays, the same tape that we've read ex- excerpts of on this podcast in past episodes, and then after that, they... Tommy's is played first, so we should say Tommy's... Tommy's is played first, and then, again, they play Carl's. Carl's goes through the similar objections. His attorney does similar objections. Um, But uh, then they go on and they play his tape. So uh, they play the tapes. You know, um, the spectators that that are not part of the proceedings are clearly impacted by what they have heard. And then they adjourn until the next day. That's where they end it that day. And we should also note, this is the first time that Carl and Tommy's attorneys got to see these confession tapes. They had not... Uh, they did not have the right to discovery for the preliminary hearing, which means they didn't have the right to get the government's evidence before it was being presented. Uh, so they didn't have a right to get these tapes before they got played in court that day. And so when they got played, they were just as new to the information that was in those tapes as everyone who was sitting in the courtroom watching. And they go right into, uh, you know, George Butner, who was the attorney for Carl. He immediately, right after seeing the tapes, starts speaking about these inconsistencies between the two tapes and that no evidence has been produced to prove or disprove these statements, um, that they really just kind of go into it very quickly, that they start seeing for the first time that, yes, these are confession tapes, but they are 
intensely problematic, which is what we had talked about in prior episodes they saw for the first time in that courtroom. And then they also, you know, immediately started to ask for a change of venue if there was going to be a trial. Because just the spectators that showed up for this preliminary case, you can't have that kind of... Um, emotion behind the venue where you're going to actually hold a trial. So they sort of go into this sort of these roles very, very quickly. Yeah. Well, with the amount of people that are showing up to the preliminary hearing, I mean, it's it's unheard of how many people are showing up and the amount of attention that it's getting in the media Um, And usually the main reason to change the venue for a case would be that you don't think you're going to be able to get an impartial jury. You're going to get these juries who have read the news articles or seen the tapes or know people who know the family, and you're just not going to be able to get a group of people who haven't already formed an opinion before going into court. So they're really just kind of setting up, like, if this does go forward, it needs to move somewhere where where we have people who, who don't know about this case already. Um, and I think coming out of these tapes being played, I too, I want to, I think it says so much about them because very quickly our de- the defense attorneys were super, you know, not to say excited, but they were feeling like the inconsistencies on these tapes was going to be enough, right? The fact that you had two individuals that didn't even sound like they were talking about the same thing, that there was no, nothing that really connected them. Um, and that going, moving forward, yes, the tapes have been played. Yes, they're confession tapes. Yes, we have stressed time and time again that going into a trial when you have a confession tape is an upward battle to try to get somebody off. That it's, you know, they're uh, they're stacked against them in this way. But they really felt, you know, upon seeing them for the first time that, okay, we've got we've got a lot of problems with these tapes. These are not these are not foolproof confessions to say the least. Yeah, so I think in that way the attorneys were feeling somewhat hopeful, you know. One of the only details that really matched in the tapes was who was there. And that is something that the the government, the the district attorney is already saying isn't true. This this one detail that Carl and Tommy and Odell and Denise were the four people who were there. They're already disproving that by, you know, saying that Odell wasn't there. And it's just, like, they came up, they both were questioned and put in jail for giving confessions, and they both came up with this name of this person who then it turns out wasn't there. And in Tommy's tape, you know, as we touched on before, he keeps calling Odell Titsworth Odell Titsdale. And uh, Carl can't even pick Odell out of a picture lineup and says that Odell doesn't have any identifying marks when in fact he's covered in tattoos. Um, So I think that even though the defense attorneys are just really concerned about having confessions, they're also feeling like no, there's no way that not maybe not no way, but that it's going to be really difficult for the district attorney to get a conviction out of these confession tapes that don't match up at all. Um, And so that's the end of the day on Monday. And then on Tuesday, they start right up again, um, calling their next witness. And 
Speaking of which, the next witness <laughs> is Odell, Odell Titsworth. And they basically just bring Odell on for him to explain that he wasn't there and the reasons why he wasn't there. Um, and I guess it's just to to show the reason why he isn't also being charged. Um but what is another interesting part is that he, yeah, he talks about he couldn't have been involved. He shows that he's tattooed. He, um, he talks about his broken arm. and But he also talks about that while he was under arrest, he had asked the police to put him in a cell next to the suspects so that he could gather information from them. And the pr- police had actually agreed to do this. So he said that he was in the cell next to Ward, for 15 or 20 minutes, that um, that Tommy Ward apologized at that point to him and to Fontenot. And he said that he thought it all came from a dream because he had actually had this dream about this. And that he had never actually even met either of the suspects before being arrested in this case. So... That... Uh- that Odell Tetsworth had never met Tommy or Carl. Yes, Odell had never met Tommy or Carl. And so that there's this moment. So on the stand, Tetsworth actually talks about, yeah, I was, you know, I had a chance to talk to Tommy Ward for 15 or 20 minutes. He apologized. He apologized to Fontenot. And he brought up this dream. And again, we haven't heard a lot about this dream. There's only been a couple of moments where, at the, you know, when Don Wyatt first picked up the case, he mentioned it to the press. The press didn't go anywhere with it. Um, Now it's being mentioned again by Odell Titsworth in the preliminary hearing. And really, again, nothing comes of it. Nobody's really picking up on it. No, and it's, it's a frustrating element for me because I think if you read the letters that Tommy had been writing at this point, Tommy had given a couple of very long, 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 hard to decipher letters um, that he wrote when he first went into custody that gave a point-by-point point, uh, of what actually happened during his interrogation and how we got to these confession tapes. And during those letters, he talks about this dream and he talks about the confusion that was happening. He talks about how he felt like he was kind of coerced into doing this tape, but what he was actually talking about was a dream he had had. And But I find that it's when it's brought up, it's nobody's picking it up and maybe because it's you know now in retrospect looking back I can see it in a way that they couldn't see then where at the time maybe when somebody like Odell gets on the stand and says oh yeah he was talking about this dream he had had and I was in it so he gave my name it just gets kind of dropped as like well what are we we're not going to talk about somebody's dream in the courtroom yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it, it's unbelievable the way that nobody is picking up on it. Nobody's hearing uh, the number of times that it's being mentioned as a dream. Uh, but that, and then that's, I mean, that's pretty much it for Odell Titsworth. Yeah. He gets off the stand. Right after that, they call his girlfriend and then also his mom. And they both have pretty much the same purpose, to testify that Odell Titsworth was home on the night that... Uh, that Denise Haraway disappeared, that there's no way he could have been involved, in addition to the fact that he was at home with them, he had a broken arm. Yeah, so they're just backing up that story for him, basically. And that's pretty much it for them. And then the, uh, the prosecution keeps on going, and the next witness that they call is Dennis Smith. 
And this is big, right? So Dennis Smith, he's been leading this investigations, right? And so he goes on to first talk about how Carl was unable to identify Titsworth from a photo lineup and about the tattoos. And, you know, that's really what, surprising to me, the first, that, that they bring up Dennis to just kind of reiterate that Odell is not involved, right? I mean, Dennis Smith has been at the front of this investigation and to really just kind of start with, okay, we, we get it. Odell was not there. We got it, right? And so he then is cross-examined by the defense attorneys who basically try to find out if the police have in fact planted information in the suspect's minds before these taped statements were made. Um, because, and so what he's, so Dennis has asked things like, was he in fact the person who mentioned Titsworth's name to the suspects? And, you know, because if we look at the tapes, you, these two gentlemen are not clear on who they're talking about. And so they ask, you know, Den- Dennis Smith, did you give this name? And he says, as one would expect, that he doesn't remember. Um, he also is asked about the lie detector test. And he says, so were the results of this lie detector test, this flunked lie detector test, were those results given to Ward before he made this confession? Now, we know that it was done immediately by Rusty, but Smith says he doesn't know, and he wasn't in the presence of that, and so he again says, I don't know if that was done. He's also gone on to say, does he remember a dream that Tommy Ward had told him about? And this gets him kind of defensive. You know, he says, quote, you asked me, do I remember a dream that he had? I don't know what he dreams. I wasn't there in that dream. And he just gets kind of agitated about this dream. And why are we talking about an individual who murdered somebody's dream? Which Um, is... uh, I guess I get it because he's on the stand and he has to back up this... confession that he got but it's just like i mean from what from what we have read from everything that tommy wrote right after this instant like it was all about a dream all tommy kept saying was about a dream and they kept saying it's not a dream it's not a dream and then when they put on the recorder they're like don't mention your dream so i mean i i guess maybe it's the same agitation that Dennis Smith had with him at the time being like, this isn't a dream. Like you did this. So just own up to it. And now on the stand, he's like feeling the same way. Like, no, this isn't a dream, but it's just, I mean, from everything that, that we've read, because the only record that we have of what happened during those hours and hours and hours before the tape went on is what Tommy wrote. Cause the detectives sure aren't telling people what happened. So all we have is what Tommy wrote and what Tommy wrote was all about him telling them about this dream because they told him that he failed this lie detector test. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, and I, I want to try to keep an open mind on like, how is this dream missed over and over again? And, and I, you know, and I think, well, maybe in these kind of cases, would you acknowledge a dream and the impact that it's had? But I think the thing, the thread that kind of keeps me focused on it is that it's something Tommy has told a lot of stories and he has been inconsistent many times, but the thing that he has always kind of returned to is the fact that like, 
I was confused and I was confused because I was having this dream and I was having these dreams and I started to share that and that I kind of got jumbled up in that. And that's the one consistent story he's always come back to. And so Dennis is pushed and pushed and pushed on this, Dennis Smith, and eventually he says, yeah, I remember him telling me about a dream, but he is sure that it had occurred uh, days after the confession tape was actually made. And so he, they then go on to talk to Dennis Smith about the composite sketches that went out. And, and I just, I know we've said this in every episode where we talk about the composite sketches, but I'm just going to reiterate again. Those composite sketches were not done by the people who saw the one, the one and only person who was seen leaving with Denise Haraway. These sketches were made by Karen Wise, who was working down the street at JP's. And so... These may be people who went and then abducted Denise Haraway, or they may just be people who gave to, gave Karen Wise the creeps at JP's. But these are the sketches that we're talking about um, that Dennis Smith then gets asked about. Yeah, and so, you know, and he goes on to say how you know, Tommy's name was given multiple, multiple times. Phone calls were coming in. And, and they, they, he, they even asked him at one point, well, how do you know that one person didn't make 15 phone calls saying it was Tommy Ward? And Smith said, I, I have no way of knowing that, you know. So, again, it's kind of the phone calls to me aren't really important as again the composite sketches aren't really valid they they should have been dismissed long before mainly because they were not even based on individuals who were in the store that Denise missed, went missing from. It makes no sense to, to have used them or to even be continuously talking about them. And we're now at a point where two weeks have gone on and the hearing is not done, uh, but there's some calendar issues and they put this, this preliminary hearing into recess and it's going to resume on February 4th. So now there's a break of a couple of weeks before they go on with the rest of the hearing. And in the meantime, you know, there's there are things going on outside of this hearing. Tommy and Carl are, are still obviously in jail, um, but their families aren't. And in the meantime, uh, one of Tommy's sisters, uh, whose name is Trisha, she has a friend named Vicki Jenkins. And Vicky happens to be friends with Karen Wise. I know this is getting a little bit convoluted. So Tommy's sister, Trisha, is friends with Vicky. Vicky is friends with Karen Wise. And Karen Wise is the person who worked at JP's, who on the stand testified that Carl and Tommy were the people who were in JP's the night that uh, Denise Haraway was abducted. And Karen Wise is also responsible for the composite sketches. So these sketches that have gone out that kind of blasted into Ada that resulted in multiple phone calls coming in, um, they were done by the information that Karen Wise provided to the police. Vicky goes and tells Trisha, Tommy's sister, that she had spoken to her friend Karen Wise and that Karen Wise, who was a close friend of hers, had actually told her that before the hearing, she could not positively say that it was Tommy who had been at JP's that night. And beyond that, that Carl Fontenot definitely 
was not at JP's that night. So, I mean, obviously this is a little game of telephone. It's a little bit convoluted. It's not coming directly from Karen to Trisha. It's coming from Karen to Karen's friend to Trisha, who's, you know, Tommy's sister and is then going to take it to Tommy and Tommy's attorney. But this is just something interesting that has happened in the meantime. And then also Vicky tells Trisha that Karen has had some threatening phone calls since the hearing and that she believes that she saw somebody lurking outside of where she lives, and she believes that that person is actually one of the people who was in JP's that night. Now, we talked in an earlier episode about some of the issues with identifying people and with just people's memories in general and that sort of identification. So whether or not this person who is outside of her apartment is or is not the person who was at JP's, I don't know whether or not Tommy or Carl were at JP's that night. I don't know. But what's more important is that I don't think Karen Wise has any idea either. Right. And I think, again, you had said, you know, this is, it gets a little, well, this person said, and she said, she said, but I really want to stress that like the town, though we're in this preliminary hearing and it's very kind of, you know, person by person is getting up onto the stand that the entire town of Ada is in a frenzy that there is so much uh conversation so you know the ward is the wards are a huge family um there's tons of tentacles to this you have Denise Haraway and the family that she's married into the Haraways I mean everybody there's so many people involved in this and that you know, this is how word spreads, right? And in, in that, sure, it came from a second party. Sure, maybe it was it, this information that Vicky gives Trisha never goes anywhere. Um, but it's this these these bits of information that do come out where it's like, hey, Karen came to me and said she now is questioning her testimony. She doesn't feel like that she got this right and. And it's just these moments where they should be noted is that this wasn't a airtight situation. We've known that going in, but that these instances really kind of prove that. And so this is happening, like we said, in the meantime, while they're waiting to resume the preliminary hearing, which has gone on for quite a long time for a preliminary hearing. So they start the preliminary hearing up again on February 4th. It's been... Uh, like a whole month since the preliminary hearing started. And at this point, Dennis Smith is still on the stand. He didn't finish uh, his cross-examination when they left off the hearing earlier. So he's still being cross-examined by the defense attorneys. And the thing that he goes into now is that he admits that in the Carl Fontenot confession they talk about burning Denise Haraway's body in this home out in the woods. And what they now know is that home was burned a year prior and it was actually burned by the owner of the property. So they push Dennis on that. And he does say, yes, um, 
that it was the owner had done that. Yes, it had happened the year before. Um, that he that and he also goes on to say how Fontenot had claimed he was innocent and that he had said that he had lied about that in his statement. So he goes on the record and says this, you know, says that yeah, these bits of the of the statement aren't actually true. So they're getting him to break down that that what we already know that so much of these tapes aren't true. And also to admit that Carl, also right after taping this confession, claimed his innocence, claimed that this confession wasn't true. He actually goes on to further to talk about Fontenot, and he was saying how when Fontenot uses the word, quote, abducting in his statement, and he talks about abducting her, that he doesn't actually understand what that word means. That he means that he thinks that what that means is when you have sex with a dead person. So again, I don't want to go into great details about what this is, but it is these these kind of moments that sort of nod to what we're up against when we talk about Tommy and Carl and what kind of... We haven't chosen in this podcast to talk about them individually in great length, though there is a lot of information about the two of them and their families and how they came up and what their social status was and what their socioeconomic status was and their education levels. And there's a lot there. And and so I think we just have these brief moments that kind of nod to the fact that like, okay, you know, we have two individuals who are not fully grasping even what the words are that are coming out of their mouth. Well, and you have to ask yourself in a situation like that, if he doesn't know what that word means and that is like a big word for him, was that his own word or did someone Mm -hmm. else encourage him to use that word? And that, I mean, that's the first thing that comes up for me when you've got people using language that they don't usually use, that they don't understand the meaning of. It's probably a word that's being fed to them. And so the last thing that the detective is questioned about is um, the in situation where he and Mike Baskin brought some bones and a skull into Tommy Ward to kind of rattle him. And he admits, yeah, we did that. You know, we already had confessions. We wanted to get the body back to the family. Um, and that this was a tactic that we used. And as we had, we've heard, it is not illegal or uh, you are not breaking any laws as a detective to actually bring human bones into an individual saying these are the bones of the person who we know you killed. Uh, is it ethical? Probably not. But um, we, at this point, have not gotten to a point that we find that to be illegal. And so that's where it ends with him. That's where the state, at this point, rests their case. Yeah, so then Dennis Smith is the last detective for, or their last witness for the state. They believe that with everyone who they have presented and with the tapes that they've played, that they have proven... Uh, Not only that Denise was abducted and raped and murdered, but that the people who did it were Tommy and Carl. So on a scale of 1 to 10, that by at least a 3 to 4 certainty, they have proven that these things have happened. And the defense attorneys have the opportunity now to present witnesses who can prove that this didn't happen. And the first person that they call is Karen Wise. Well, the first and the only person that they call. So it's it's 
we were going to talk about Karen, but we also we should make a point that uh, this is the only this is the only witness that they're calling is Karen Wise, and this is again the individual who worked at JP's down the street down the street who was responsible for the composite sketches and gave testimony. And so basically, also the purpose of calling Karen Wise was to ask her about the information from Vicky Jenkins who we just talked about. Vicky was the friend of Tommy's sister, who apparently Karen Wise had told her, A, that uh, she was no longer sure in her identifications of Tommy and Carl, and B, that she was being stalked by someone who she felt maybe matched the description more so than Tommy and Carl. And then that's the end of the... That's the end of the questioning for her. I mean, it really just kind of ends there, is that... They give the opportunity for her to say, okay, I'm not sure. And because we have to think that that's the jumping off point for this case. The jumping off point for this case is JP's and is these two men that came in, quote, acting strange and the compo- composite sketches that were made. That And that is how Tommy Ward's name was given. Then that went on to Carl Fontenot's name. So it's this kind of snowball effect that if we go backwards, it all starts with Karen Wise. And so... But, She's the only person called. But Karen Wise doesn't even bring in very much useful information. She admits that she had been receiving some strange phone calls. She admits that she had seen someone lurking below her apartment and that that person might resemble the person who came into JP's with Tommy Ward. She doesn't go on to... Uh, confirm the things that Vicki Jenkins had said about not being sure about her identifications. She just says that maybe this person looks like the person who came into JP's. Yeah, and then that's the end of it. The testimony is concluded. There is a bit of a, you know, the defense attorneys go on to request a continuation. They do want to call in Agent Gary Rogers to testify. Rogers had been present at um, had not actually been present, I'm sorry, at any of the sessions, though he was the officer who officially brought the charges. But at the time of this prelim hearing, he is out at a training. Um, it's denied that they're going to continue. They want to get this going. This is, as you had said, as an attorney, this is crazy long for a preliminary hearing. And um, so they deny this request to to hold things up, to talk to this individual. And they move into their closing statements. Right. And the defense attorneys then argue that their their central motion, which is that all of the charges should be dismissed for lack of evidence. That is their that's been what they've saying at the beginning. Now after a month, that's what they're saying. They're saying this didn't do it. This didn't do it and this should be dismissed. Yeah, and like we said, I mean they have to prove, you know, they have to prove that all of these crimes actually happened. And we've had now a really, really long preliminary hearing. So then what happens next? I mean, I would think that the judge would probably take a break and take some time to look over all of this evidence and make and make his decision. Is that what happens? No. He just, you know, he... And I don't know if it's out of being tired or being over it, but Judge Miller, he doesn't ask... He doesn't even call for a recess. He goes right into his ruling and he doesn't take a moment he basically goes on to say that on the rape charge um 
he says that he has ruled there is no evidence that has been introduced beyond the statements of the defendants proving rape and that the rape charge will be dismissed. He overruled the defense objections on the other three counts and he orders Tommy and Carl both to be bound for formal arraignment on charges of robbery with a dangerous weapon, of kidnapping, and of murder in the first degree. He sets the formal arrangement for Monday, March 4th, which is going to be a month in the future. And, well, it's actually will be, Wards will be Monday, March 4th. Fontenot will be March 5th. And that at that arraignment, they will both be asked to plead their charges. And that's it. And here is what really gets me about this decision. It is just, like, the fact that he's dropping the rape charge. I mean, there is nothing besides these confession tapes to prove that they abducted her, to prove that they murdered her, to prove that they raped her, to prove that any of this happened. So how he could say okay, there isn't enough evidence to prove the rape, but there's enough evidence to prove all of these other things that there's no evidence of. And it also kind of then brings the confession tapes into question, right? Even more so. Even more so. We're back to this sort of like, well, now what are we saying about these confession tapes? Because you have two individuals who are giving different stories, different crime scenes, different events, but the one thing that they're both talking about is they both talk about pretty graphically how this woman has been raped and they so to say that that didn't happen you know of course I want to believe that that didn't happen right of course I want to say let's get rid of this charge but to say oh we don't have evidence for that even though we're, we're somehow not looking at the confession tapes as being enough evidence but we're looking at the confession tapes to actually be enough evidence for murder like how that disconnect happens, again, I think when I read this case, it's another, I mean, I, at this point, we're so deep in shock, I think, that of what's happened over and over and over again. But it's another point that just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I just, I don't have any words really to explain how the judge could make a decision like that. I mean, I, I guess maybe I could, understand how you would say all right on a scale of one to ten i've got a three to four certainty with what we have that these guys maybe did all of these things but to come back and take one of those charges out it's like what is going on in his mind that like that didn't happen but everything else did and if everything else did happen what was the purpose of abducting her to begin with it sure wasn't to steal 120 dollars from mcanalee's like there must have been a reason to yeah. abduct her. Like, and it's I try just to, baffling. And I try to think about it in terms of like, well, maybe they have proven, you know, we don't have any evidence. We don't have a body. We don't have bones. We don't have blood. We've talked about that over and over and over again. But we have these witnesses that have said, well, but we have kind of been able to conclude that she must be dead because she didn't open a credit card. She didn't, her name's not shown up. There's no identified bodies. And so maybe in his, the judge's mind, he says, well, that's enough evidence to prove murder, but we don't know what they actually did with the body. So, but it also makes me think that the judge doesn't rely on the confession tapes, that the confession tapes aren't enough for him, or at least they aren't. I would hope that a judge, even if, you know, in this 
small town of Ada is still able to look at information, even as town that is this charged and everybody kind of knows everybody, they can still look at this and say, these tapes are problematic, right? And so maybe in his mind, he was like, yeah, the tapes are problematic, but we've kind of concluded that they're, you know, these, this woman's probably been killed. And so we'll charge them with murder. But the rape stuff, well, we don't really, I mean, that's the most benefit of the doubt I can give the judge at this point, because I just don't understand without taking a break, without looking at all of this information that's come out over the last month, he didn't even take a moment to say, all right, let me look at this. Let me see where we're at. Let me see if I should dismiss this. I mean, that's a death penalty case. How can you just, without taking a moment, even for yourself to say, all right, I better look at this closely because two people's life is on the line. So that's where the preliminary hearing ends. And now Tommy and Carl are set to be tried for these crimes. They're set to go on to a full-on trial with a jury. There's going to be some time before this trial happens because the defense attorneys need time to prepare their case and the uh, district attorneys need time to prepare their case. And I'm sure the district attorney is hoping to find a body in the meantime to make it easier for them to prove that a murder happened. Yeah, and they actually drag their feet a while moving forward. And and I think on both sides, both sides are happy with the fact that they're taking some time to go to trial. Because as you said, you've got one side that needs to get evidence and the other side that really needs to build a defense. So the time that they take is... is is good on both sides, but they but they are moving forward. And so next week we're going to take the week off to celebrate Thanksgiving and be with our family for the holidays, but we will be back the following week with our episodes going back to our regular every week schedule. So next week on Thanksgiving there will be no new episode of Unraveled, but we will be back to our regular schedule the following week. And in our next episode, we will talk about that time leading up to the trial and what are the investigations that are being done by Tommy and Carl's attorneys to try and prove that they're innocent. Uh, So stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Unraveled, Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. Your hosts are Nicole Richards and Caleb Aring. Producing, mixing, and editing done by Caleb Aring and Matt Van Horn. Music by Broke for Free. Voice talent by Joe Eager. Tune in next week to listen to more of this case unravel.